KW Feedcast brings you all you need to know about the raw material markets. Brought to you every fortnight by KW Alternative Feeds. Can you afford to miss it? KW Feedcast. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, basically wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to your Over the Farmgate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host this week, FG Deputy Editor Olivia Midgley. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode. Well, the COP26 climate conference may be drawing to a close this week, but conversations around how the UK farming industry will meet ambitious targets will remain in full flow for the foreseeable. In our final special episode on climate change, we're looking at another way in which agriculture is looking to adapt to the changing climate and ensure food security for generations. Here's Jess Fredenberg. Genetic diversity of our food crops is not something that has been talked about at COP26, but it should have because it's going to be a critical tool to help farming adapt to climate change, to prevent widespread crop disease and ultimately to ensure our food security. Safeguarding this diversity for future generations is a job currently done by 1,700 seed banks around the world. Overseeing all of these with support is the Crop Trust, an international organisation set up on behalf of the UN Food and Agricultural Organisation and CGIAR's Global Network of Agricultural Research Stations. It's the only organisation tasked with ensuring humanity conserves and makes available the world's crop diversity for future food security. Part of that means operating the global seed vault in Svalbard, Norway, the ultimate backup bank for all the other seed banks in the world. It holds the globe's largest collection of crop diversity from almost every country in the world and has capacity to store 4.5 million crop varieties and 2.5 billion seeds. Here to talk about where the world is right now with crop diversity, how farming can make use of it, and to give us an insider view into the Svalbard Global Seed Vault is Hans Dempelwolf, a senior scientist at the Crop Trust. Hans, I wonder if you could please paint a picture for us about where the world is right now regarding genetic diversity of food crops. You know, what was it like when humans first started farming and where are we now in comparison? Yeah, I think when uh, it, it's, a really, uh, it's a really great question um, and one that I would like to take a little bit of time to, um, to answer because it is quite a big question you're asking. Um, you know, all of our food crops come from wild species originally. Um, and so when agriculture uh, first came about, uh, the first food crops were domesticated. And <clears throat> that domestication me- meant that uh, plants were selected. You know, plants were, wild plants were selected for certain characteristics that made them suitable uh, for human consumption. And that in itself was the start of a narrowing down of the genetic diversity that these wild plants had uh, inherent. And so really from the start of agriculture, this the, the diversity has gone down. Um, however, uh, there's been an, uh, a massive increase in this narrowing of diversity in, I would say, the last 100 years or so with the advent of uh, modern crop improvement and modern plant breeding. Humans just got better and better and better at breeding and creating more and more uniform varieties and crops, which of course is a great thing. As a farmer, you want reliable yields. You want uniformity because it's reliability. 
uh, and you want to be able to predict um, your uh, your production. And so it is also totally understandable why you know we we've been on this trajectory of of a narrowing genetic diversity in our agricultural systems. And in fact, today when we uh, talk about um, you know our major stakeholders. Breeders are the ones that understand the value of this genetic diversity uh, the most because they rely on that diversity that has been selectively bred out of the varieties to create new and interesting uh, modern varieties that are adapted to uh, future challenges. It all relies, again, on being able to access that diversity that was once found in those wild species or you know, early cultivars uh, and land races. And so this is where gene banks or seed banks are so important because seed banks conserve those old varieties or these wild species that are related to our crops and make them available for breeders to be able to bring back some of these characteristics that we may have lost out of our modern cultivars. And that is incredibly relevant for climate change. Because with, uh, in a climate change scenarios, the agricultural production systems are changing so rapidly. The environmental conditions are often off the charts. And that means that the varieties that are commonly grown at the moment are simply not adapted well enough anymore to those conditions. And so we have to go basically reach back through that domestication bottleneck, you know, through these, 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 this narrowing down of diversity that happened over time to bring back some of that genetic diversity and breed it back into our current cultivar to make sure that they are more, uh, once again, more resilient and resistant to the, the challenges agriculture is facing today. Can you give us a, a, a flavor of some of the, uh, some specific examples of where that kind of lack of genetic diversity in crops is now starting to cause problems. Probably a lot of the farmers listening may have heard about diseases in bananas, for example, but can you give us some examples in crops that might be more relevant to um, being grown in Europe? There's many, many examples. Um, um, you know, potato uh, and late blight, for example, is, is a good example where we have late blight resistance in wild species and that can be bred into the um, into cultivars to make sure that they're more late blight resistant. Wheat is another example. There's an enormous wealth of diversity and genetic diversity that's still untapped in wild species that are related to cultivated wheat. Uh, but also old cultivars of wheat that we um, that we can bring back drought tolerance, for example. There's a lot of research going on and trying to bring uh, make wheat more drought tolerant, which is very relevant for for climate uh, change. So this is uh, this is just a few examples. There are many examples. Almost every crop you look at, there have been historic examples, or there's active research going on on how to we can recover some of those traits that uh, are no longer found in our current cultivars. I want to talk about um, a couple of the projects that the Crop Trust is working on in a minute, but I wonder if you could first tell us about the um, the global seed vault in Svalbard. You mentioned earlier how important these seed banks are for conserving this genetic diversity so that we can actually use it to our advantage and adapt to something like climate change. Well, can you tell us about the Global Seed Vault? You know, what what, it, what is it? I'm, I'm guessing you've, you've been there like a few times. You know, what is it like and what really is stored there? Like, It sounds quite sort of sci-fi, doesn't it? Yeah, it's quite a futuristic building, also the way it looks um, and, and its purpose. And yes, I've had the privilege to visit um, several times. And every time I, I go there, I'm in awe again about you know, the building itself, but also the idea behind it and the enormous international corporation that makes this possible and, and the, the, the function it fulfills. It's just, 
it sort of gives you hope in the future of humanity to see this uh, this this global effort happening and and so successfully. So there's yeah now about 1.2 million seed accessions from all over the world stored uh, in the vault. Uh, the vault has a total capacity that's about three times that much. So there's still plenty of space there. The mission of the the Svalbard Global Seed Vault is to provide a backup uh, for active seed banks around the world. So I think that's really important to understand that this is not a regular seed bank. You know, regular seed banks spend a lot of their their time and activities on regenerating uh, seeds, making sure that, you know, plants are grown up after a certain time in storage, seeds lose their viability and you have to regenerate them. Of course, you can't do that in the Arctic. Uh, and so the, the seed vault in the Arctic is a pure backup facility for these active uh, seed banks around the world to make sure if anything happens to the original collections, a safety copy can be accessed. What's also really important to note is that uh, the, all the material up there in Svalbard is seeds that are important for food and agriculture. So there's no wild species uh, per se. So this is the, the clear mission of the vault and, and of that facility. And the material that's stored up there was always still owned, in, in quotations, by the depositing seed banks. Um, so it is really just a like a bank vault where you can store some of your um, your belongings. What does it look like when you when you arrive there? I'm guessing it's pretty remote. I know it was the location was picked to to withstand all sorts of possible disasters, wasn't it? Um, what, what is what does it feel like to go in there? What do you see? Yeah, that's right. So the the location is in the far, far north of Norway, and it's quite quite a far way away from the Norwegian mainland. So it's on this uh, archipelago, well beyond the Arctic Circle. It's very, very cold up there. Um, and depending on uh, which time of year you go there, it's also very either completely dark or um, day all day along during the Arctic summers. When you then get to the vault, you know, in in the Arctic winter, the vault has an artwork that's illuminated above its uh, entrance portal, which sort of also has this glowing effect. So that already makes it look quite mystic. But then when you when you enter the vault, it is a very functional facility. It has this uh, long um, uh, uh, tube, entrance tube that goes down into the inside of the mountain. And once you've reached the, the bottom of that um, that tube, you, you're in this cavernous space, uh, which is the entrance to the three big vaults. So there's three big vault rooms. Um, and the first vault room, when you open the door, it's, it tends to be encrusted in ice if you sort of open it. Uh, then there's shelves and shelves full of um, of these boxes that contain seeds. And one of those vaults is uh, one of, one of these vault chambers is now full, and we've opened the second um, chamber. You know these boxes that you see are never opened. The the shipments are arri- uh, arrive in Svalbard from all over the world. They're being you know security screened and like like you would see in an airport and making sure that everything's all right. But then they're just deposited there. No one, you don't actually, no one ever looks at the seeds. They're they're just stored there. And whenever a gene bank or a seed bank in some part of the world requests it back, it'll it'll be shipped back. That happened once, by the way, um, in the history of the world. I was going to say, um, has any country? I think you said Syria. I know Syria had requested some seeds back because of the war. Yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't actually the National Seed Bank in Syria, but it was the International Center for Agricultural Research in Dry Areas, ICARDA, that um, uh, had its facility in Aleppo in Syria and due, due to civil unrest uh, could no longer operate its facility. Uh, and they decided to reestablish the whole seed bank in Morocco and in Lebanon. 
Uh, and to be able to do that, they had to withdraw um, their the the whole deposit that they had in Svalbard, which took multiple years. And so that process um, has been going on since since five years, and I believe is still not quite finished. Um, so it, it, it's a it's a big deal, um, but it did prove the worth of the vault uh, for sure. Of course, our fervent hope is that there won't be any further such cases because it means that catastrophe has struck a seed bank somewhere around the world. And that's the that's what we're trying to avoid. But it's good to know that in case it does happen, uh, the seeds are seeds are safe and sound. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, a really important global global backup system, really. How how much can farmers themselves do uh, you know, within their own farming systems to conserve genetic diversity and to to really build resilience through diversity? If you're thinking specifically about um, UK farmers, what's always a good idea um, is to think about diversity in your crop rotations, for example. Sometimes diversity of inter- interesting varieties are also very marketable. There, um, there are many food. Uh, we know of several uh, food processing companies that are looking for new varieties because they look at it as innovation. You know, they can uh, produce new products, new flavors. Um, so the diversity um, is isn't just benefit for farmers in terms of you know being able to to produce yields under adverse conditions, but it also can be a very marketable uh, benefit uh, to producers. And I think I would encourage farmers to always try and see if there are different kinds of varieties they could try out to see whether you know there may be a small plot of land where they could they could try out different varieties. Of course, it always comes with a risk because what if it doesn't work out, right? So I would never try to advise a farmer to completely switch to something new that they had no experience with. And I'm far from that. But it is often, you know, if if you have sort of a a tendency or or, or you're happy to experiment, look at it as an experiment to see to what extent you can uh, expand your options. Uh, And you may be surprised what you're finding. We've also had lately quite a lot of interest by chefs, um, you know, uh, of restaurants who are always looking for new crops, new varieties that they can um, that they can get their hands on to be able to to make new interesting dishes. And that's, I think, a way you know, we've never looked at seed banks that way. You know, we've never thought about flavor, quite quite frankly. It's totally new to us. Seed banks are not don't collect information on on that kind of and that kind of um, diversity either. You know, the, those kind of characteristics. But it could be in the future. It could be become more important. Uh, and maybe we need a project that looks at different flavor profiles of different um, of different varieties, even of things like wheat, where you don't would not necessarily expect big differences in flavor. So, to me, you know, the diversity conserved in our seed bank is like a big toolbox. And it's a treasure chest. And there's many ways you can explore those treasures if you just dare to do it. Uh, It comes with some risks, but I think the risks are manageable and the potential benefits could be significant. Yeah, it's really interesting as well what you you say about chefs and, and possibly manufacturers coming to you now. I guess our food system part of, well, the biggest kind of, one of the biggest results, I suppose, of a food system where we've ended up with a lot of monocultures and a a kind of narrowing range of of crop diversity is that our food has also become much more narrow in in many ways. I mean, in lots of ways, it feels like 
there's an enormous amount of choice if you go to a supermarket, and there is. But at the same time, there is a sort of narrowing there, isn't there? So oh, yeah. I, it sounds it sounds like you're you're kind of saying that maybe that is starting to turn a little bit, and people are actually getting a bit a bit bored of that and realizing that there's so much more out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the consciousness is changing, but what's not necessarily changing are the way food processors work. You know, the uniformity in 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 crops is still number A to make sure that uh, you know they have effective, efficient, and and cheap ways of of producing food. I mean, in in, in Germany, for example, um, uh, we've had thousands. Only a hundred years ago, we had thousands of different apple varieties. And now all um, all the main apples that are produced or, or that are bought in supermarkets descend from only six varieties. Um, so that is a huge, huge bottleneck that happened here. And you can imagine if now uh, a disease sweeps through a German apple orchard that these six varieties happen to be susceptible to, then you're toast. And and diseases, plant diseases are predicted to spread uh, more widely into different areas as a consequence of climate change as well. Um, and so, you know, this is one example where, you know, if you have uh, an orchard full of different apple trees, you can mitigate that risk. You know, diversity is growing more diversity makes your your production system more resilient. And it, it is a it is really a risk mitigation um, strategy, just like, you know, investors try to mitigate risk by diversifying their investment portfolios in the stock market. That's the way to think about it, um, is, is, is trying to take advantage of that diversity that, um, that farmers over you know, centuries or millennia have produced all over the world to be able to help us today mitigate that climate, climate risk. Do you, do you know of any other, I mean, you gave the example of, uh, of uh, German apples there, but are there any other diseases that we know of at the moment that are on the edge of really being able to exploit um, the lack of genetic diversity in crops? Yeah, I mean, there's, in, in bananas, you know, we've we've already had the disaster once when the the Cavendish was sort of wiped out. But there is Black Cicatoka, which is a new virus, virus that's spreading around the world that almost all banana production are susceptible to. Then the, another example, which successfully was sort of the crisis was averted, was a new strain of wheat uh, fungus called UG99 was moving up um, uh, across Africa and was about to hit um, also Asia and, and, and Europe. And there was a massive effort all around the world to try to screen gene bank accessions and, and breeder, breeders' materials, and they did find some resistance that could now be bred into, into, into wheat varieties. The diseases, I think, are often the most dramatic because, um, and they are affected by climate change because they have such a devastating loss uh, as a result. You know, it's not sort of a gradual, but it could really wipe out whole uh, production systems. Thinking of thinking of, of wheat there uh, and, and the fact that thinking of the UK and what the UK produces, and obviously wheat is a massive, massive crop for us, you know, how how likely is it, do you think, that or how vulnerable is the world's wheat crop at the moment, given its lack of genetic diversity? I mean, you know, I would I would actually venture to say that wheat is still a pretty diverse crop if you compare it, for example, to soybeans or corn. Um, and a lot of that has to do with that most wheat production nowadays is not a hybrid system, which um, soybean and, and, and maize are. Um, and so, um, you know, compared to some of these other major staples, wheat is probably not as susceptible as uh, as they are. Also, wheat does tend to grow quite well with, in dry conditions, uh, though not 
um, maybe as dry as things will be getting. And of course, it's not just drought, right? It can also be unseasonably wet conditions. Um, so it's difficult for me to, to sort of compare, you know, whether wheat now in the UK specifically is more susceptible than other crops. But I think a good strategy is always to diversify and try to not just also not just grow wheat, but, you know, try to see whether there's some other um, cereals that may be, may be relevant and, and, and do well in the location that, that, um, that you're at. What would a world look like where we made much, much better use of the genetic diversity that Mother Nature, you know, gives us, basically? Yeah, that's a, that's a nice uh, thought experiment uh, to be on. I think it would be uh, a world that we would have a lot more options, you know, it, options for farmers, options for consumers, but also everyone in between. Um, I think it would be a much more interesting future because with options are diversity is 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 culture. Diversity is flavor. You know, we we're able to to continue also to safeguard some of those of those old varieties that maybe our grandparents have have grown and now we're growing again. You know, that also comes with a cultural value. And so my hope is that in the future we're doing much better at, at 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 not only conserving that material but also using that diversity, and therefore creating a more resilient, in some ways, a more resilient society uh, that that you know that recognizes the importance uh, of that diversity and safeguards it and, and takes its responsibility serious uh, for making sure that future generations will continue to have access to that resource. Thanks to Jez and Hans there. What an incredible insight into the seed vault and the critical role it plays. Don't forget, there's lots more on agriculture's key role in climate change mitigation and, of course, insight into the fantastic work being done by producers all around the UK as leaders in climate-friendly farming. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. But until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.